and welcome to Business Without Bullshit, the podcast brought to you by Ori Clark, who have been giving straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. I'm Dominic Frisby, and sitting opposite me is my co-host, Andrew Ori, one of the partners at Ori Clark, and he is on a mission to bring the fascinating business stories of Ori Clark's clients to a wider audience with this podcast. A quick reminder, if you like what we do here, please do rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at B-I-Z without B-S, at Biz without B-S. Now, with all that being said, hello, Andy. How are you doing? Who is our guest today? And what are we going to be talking about? Hello, Dominic. Today's guest, my good friend, Tom Huggins, uh, co-founder of Greenroom Digital, a sports marketing business working with some of the largest global sporting organizations and brand partnerships. There's a mouthful. Greensroom's aim is to create positive change in the sports and entertainment industry by revolutionizing the way brands connect and engage with their audience. Greenroom ultimately wants to create a more sustainable industry by creating new streams of revenue, implementing best practice in digital marketing strategies. So yeah, we're in good company, Dom. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hi. Yeah, let's let's start with Greenroom. Why did you call it Greenroom? And what is the best practice digital sports marketing strategy? Uh, well, the, the first one's pretty uh, pretty easy to answer. We're actually really quite uninventive and creative in coming up with this, so we threw it out to uh, five of our family and friends to come up with a, a range of different names, and then we put that back out to a vote and landed on Green Room Digital. So that's what we, we started off with about 10 years ago. So it's nothing to do with the room that actors all sit in when they're waiting to go on stage? It's not, no. It's definitely not as, uh, as entertaining as that okay. uh, may be, I'm afraid, yeah. <laughs> and what is the best practice sports digital marketing strategy. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I guess... Uh, Is there a shorter way to say that sentence? Yeah, well, <laughs> probably. Uh, look, I, I, essentially what we do is we, we try to enhance a fan experience by bringing sport and technology together. So our, our business is really focused on, you know, once we do that, we can implement the, the data and insights to create more commercial opportunities for both brands and sporting organisations. So... When we're talking about the best practice um, kind of marketing strategies being implemented within sport, that is around the the reality that sport as an industry, sport and entertainment is quite far behind the rest of the digital marketing industry. So we're just trying to get them to, to catch up. Why is that? How is it behind? Well, I think it's just because sport is a, as an industry, a sport and entertainment as an industry has always been focused on what's right in front of it and what's most important, which is either winning games of sport or putting on an event or kind of having that as their focus. And also with the industry itself moving quite quickly, if you don't have specialists within those organisations, it's hard to keep up. I guess the the industry itself even you know, 20 years ago has changed so much. The fees that are coming in from broadcast and the brands themselves, the investment into sport and entertainment has gone to extreme levels. And there's been a lot of, you know, lack of accountability on the marketing front of like what's coming back to a brand if they're investing into it. So our role is trying to quantify what we know is anecdotally true, that sport and entertainment as a property is a really effective way to market to your audience. So capturing that passion that you mentioned, Andy, and trying to understand more about the fan or the the end consumer. To sell other things or to sell more whatever sport? Well, for us, it's a, it's a lot less about selling stuff, but nothing turns people off more than being sold to. True. So it is how you can use, if we, if we just talk through the lens of sport, is how we can use sport to bring 
um, or how we can use partnerships as a way to bring people closer to the thing that they love. So in those marketing techniques, it's about offering the experiences or the assets that might come in a partnership to bring someone closer to the football team, the, the sporting team that they do follow, which then we can then track through to like what is that measurable return and that increase in engagement? What does that mean for a direct result for a brand? So it's a bit like um, in, in music, the modern sort of music marketing is that whereas before I got a CD and I just vaguely had a rough picture of them and a couple of sleeve notes and that was it. That's all I could get. And then they'd appear in a magazine and that would be a bit more information. And now there's this like one-to-one engagement between sort of Instagram and the fan who can like comment on the thing. It's a, it, it's a similar and so it's a concept you're trying to okay, I'm a fan of this thing. I quite like that tennis player, but then you're trying to really engage with me as an individual to sort of integrate me into that experience in the most sort of like, you know, basically um, entrench me or get me really into it as a thing. Is that right? Yeah, we would use use sport as a way to understand more about a consumer. And then once we understand more about what they're interested in, then we can use content, experiences, other you know, other, other kind of strategies to bring them closer to to the things that they love, as I mentioned before, but then that can be the driver between linking them to a commercial return for a brand or being able to open up a new commercial uh, opportunity through the sport itself. So whether it be tickets, merchandise, events and things of that nature. Sell more to me of something yeah. through my engagement, knowing that I'm a very engaged fan and then making perfect offers and making things that very much of what I want, so. Yeah, and the, like what, what we've done through the years that we've been, uh, yeah, as I said before, we've been working in this space for about 10 years. We, we've worked, you know, all throughout the world with uh, almost 2,500 campaigns that we've run and what we've found is that there's an uplift in marketing performance if we speak through the lens of a partnership of about 127% on average. So that moves the needle for a brand and means if you're investing tens of millions into a partnership, you can then see the direct impact of using those partnership assets to connect with your audience and you can create efficiencies in uh, in commercial returns for yourself. Is sports struggling for money? I mean, music's definitely struggling for money. The size of the industry is tiny, really. Is sport struggling for money? It's more, I think, that they're undervaluing themselves. Right. So they are struggling for money. We saw for through the COVID period that the main sources of revenue were risk ticketing and broadcast. So everything is linked on attendance and eyeballs on sport because that is the way that partners partnerships were generally valued is through the exposure metrics. So what we have been doing all throughout this period is just showing that there's another layer that we can go through, which is actually engaging with your audience. So creating new experiences, even though we can't get to the events themselves, but we can still reach out to this audience. They haven't gone anywhere. Their passion hasn't waned at all. It's they're, If anything, they're hungrier than ever before. And it's a matter of just connecting with the right content. So they don't struggle for money until there's a global pandemic and then they've got to rethink. You mentioned in your sort of emails that digital marketing is, is I, I'm hesitant to use the word, but I'll lighten it by saying slightly beforehand, slightly fraudulent. <laughs> you know, about 80% of... I have this statistic here, about 80% of all paid digital media is not served to humans and made up of a network of fake sites. Uh, But it's so ingrained in the industry that nothing's being done about it. Should we talk about that? Yeah, sure. So my my background, my business partner's background was 
on the the media owner side. So we work with a, a big telecommunications business in Australia that uh, kind of ran a media network. And that was just at the time when programmatic advertising came in, which was where uh, automated buying of advertising products across all kinds of um, websites came into fashion. And basically what has happened is there's been a proliferation of fake sites that have been created because they can create more revenue for you without having any real traffic. So there's been software written that that poses to look like a human being and you can buy media against them, but there's no actual site there. Mm. So, so it's a bit like having fake Twitter followers. It's exactly that. So or, or doing, I'm sure and, this goes on, is fake plays on Spotify of songs. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So they play so it low, pay, so your song like gets people up. People in China, like you know, with banks of Spotify, just like dun, 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 you know. But it, sp- it spikes. They can tell because they say, "Oh, it's your song has become incredibly popular in Guangzhou." <laughs> 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 you know, who listen to very little English hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's a very similar thing, but that's uh, that's kind of across the industry and the digital marketing industries. You know, worth about 350 billion. So there's a there's a lot of reasons for ad tech firms and the bigger publishers to obviously not really expose too much around that. So going back to you know, I think you know, we were discussing before the podcast, but sport has traditionally been a little bit further behind the rest of the industry. The good thing about that is that they haven't cottoned on to creating bot traffic for their own sites and their own commercial gains. So there's a really there's a really good opportunity for sport to be the blank canvas for how marketing technology should be implemented. Is there a chance the sport goes the same way and just becomes as as fake as these other industries? Well, there are big changes happening at the moment for anyone in the in the marketing world out there that, that maybe listen may be familiar to knowing about cookies, the things that probably when an ad follows you around. They are being uh, kind of rolled or discontinued as of next year. Are they? Yeah. So that, that was supposed to be this year, but Apparently Google wasn't ready for it, so it carries oh, on another year. Oh, that's probably a good thing. I'm really bored of telling them whether I do or do want to. Yeah, so I don't no longer have to accept the cookies. Yeah, yeah. So th- there's a few of these changes that are coming into the industry that will start to eradicate that. And Apple's big change to say, screw you, I'm protecting our users. That's thing. exactly it. Yeah, the Apple and Facebook um, changes had a, had a big impact on performance for Facebook. But, but basically what that means is that sport can now harness the things that We'd mentioned before they've got really passionate audiences. If they have a focus now on data acquisition and understanding a bit more of the preferences, they can become the marketing platforms that brands actually need to connect to an audience. Sport has the power; it has the value that all the other brands need. It's why it's why all the you know the most boring brand categories tend to be the biggest partners because they're trying to tap into that passion that the audience has and anything that they can have as a bit of a flow-on effect is is where the benefit comes from. What is the most boring bank? Dishwasher tablets, maybe. I was thinking Carlsberg. Carlsberg. You know, one yeah, of those really boring. anodyne lagers yeah. that, that seem to be huge. And you're like, who actually drinks Heineken? Yeah. You know, <laughs> have you ever, ever met anyone? Like, I think my son might have had his third ever pint was Heineken. And that's Heineken, about it. Rodney P drinks Heineken. Who's Rodney Heineken. B? Rodney P, he's uh, one of my favourite rappers. <laughs> oh, okay. Well. <laughs> There's a few of them out there. But have we ever done the blind tea test? I feel, I feel I need to go somewhere and they line up all the lagers, ice cold, and they say, which do you like? I bet you come out and say, I love the Fosters, you know, if they did no, it blind. It wouldn't happen. would be ashamed even as an Australian if that happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your, how did you get into sports marketing? 
What was your first job? Tell us about your background. Uh, first job was definitely nothing to do with sports marketing. Um, I worked at an abattoir in the uh, country oh. town of Castlemaine. Uh, I grew up about an hour and a half out of Melbourne. Uh, which is in the the south of Australia, but um, he's in the middle of nowhere, probably is it? Yeah, well, it's not too bad. And now it's uh, now it's been like this country town has been gentrified. It's full of just fancy coffee shops and breweries and all kinds of things. Now it's definitely not what it was back in the, the day. The abattoir still there? Abattoir is still there. Um, mainly mainly being automated, I believe. But uh, it's yeah, that was a. That was a steep learning curve. So 16 years old, you work 12-hour shift on a, on a Sunday, 6 till 6. I uh, wasn't a great student until that point and then I realised I needed to really pull myself together and uh, get the hell out of there. My friend was a vegan and he went to work in an abattoir and, and decided that actually wasn't that inhuman and, and became a meat eater. That's the opposite normal yeah, story. But you know what I like about your first job as abattoir is that is, that is like the best first job you could possibly have to wake someone up? It was ridiculously high paying. For a 16-year-old, it was equivalent, I don't know, like 15 to 20 quid an hour. Wow. So it, for, when you don't have anything else to do, just work there for a day, a month, and you... Yeah, yeah, you don't... You, you, you were like, really. God, the pay's fantastic. I mean, what's the catch? But that, well, the catch <laughs> was... The catch was it lures people in and a lot of people don't escape. So a lot of people that kind of start there, they then drift off from school, do the full kind of seven days a week type of thing, just absolutely cashing in, and then they go into a full-time contract which is then worth stuff all and they've got no education and they work in an abattoir forever, which is, you know, it's fine if that's what you wanted to do, but uh, <laughs> not not for me. And so as a result of your experiences in the abattoir, you you detected the money trap and presumably went back to study. Is that what happened? I did, yeah. So I, I moved to, to Melbourne after after school. I yeah, did university there. I worked um, in marketing at General Motors, uh, Holden, um, as it was. I think it's now kind of shutting up shop. But, um, yeah, I made a bit of a leap into the digital marketing space around 2008. Uh, so started to work at Telstra, a big telco there, and that was where I, I really kind of cut my teeth on kind of the, the advertising world, the, the digital product side of things. So there was a product manager for a number of years there where I met my business partner at the time. And then we were, we had a bit of a crossover with sport at that point because Telstra owned the rights, the digital rights to Aussie Rules Football, the, the NRL, the Rugby League there. So one of the penny drop moments for us was across the network, the sporting properties were the highest performing and they weren't doing anything with it. So we, we basically started the conversation, my business partner, had some connections from a previous role when he worked at Sydney Swans Football Club um, to ask the the sporting organisations what they're actually doing in the digital space. The answer was nothing. So we kind of went to them with the proposal of, you know, can we help you structure it, come with a workshop. They politely told us to get stuffed unless we could come and do it for them. What year was that? Uh, 2011. So you've kind of gone from being a, a startup to an employer? Let's talk about that, how... How many people do you employ now? Uh, around about 30 at the moment, split over the, the two offices in, in Melbourne or in Australia and, and the UK. Yeah, the transition, it took us a while. Like, to be honest, we were just sorting out what the hell we did for maybe the first two and a half years. So we didn't hire anyone for quite a while. That's something we would definitely change in hindsight. It was just, you know, you, you're a bit hesitant to invest the very small amounts of money we were making at the time into somebody else when we could try to do it ourselves. Yeah. But once we started to hire people, it really took the, the load off 
the operational side of things and it allowed us to focus on the vision of the business and then all of a sudden it, it's a bit of a flywheel. So the money that. you pay to employ people enabled you to grow, in other words? Yeah, exactly right. So And you didn't want to, you wanted to keep that money for yourself at first and do the job yourself? Yeah, we were absolutely running everything on a shoestring at that point in time. You know, neither of us had started a business before or run a business or really manage people. So we needed to get somebody from you know, an external point of view to look at our books and say, yeah, you're mental for not hiring somebody right now, which yeah. is then what you did. It gives you a bit of a kick. and Oh, it made you, it forced you to have more structure is almost yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can't, I won't even get a PA. I'm sure my business would grow yeah. by, you know, more than, how much does a PA cost? 20 grand a year, let's say. I mean, Depends I don't even know. what type, but yeah. But sure. let's say it's 20 grand a year for the sake of art. I'm sure my revenue would grow by more than 20 grand a year if I had a PA. But I literally cannot, and I have so much more time to allocate to, you know, my brilliant vision of the world, whatever that is. But, but I literally can't get through that first hurdle. It would take me so long to explain what needs to be done to the PA. It's just quicker to do it myself. And that's the first hurdle that I can't get over. The thing that we realized and um, yeah, business part of Nick uh, was mentioning this the other day is I think where we're at now is that there's much smarter people in the business than us. That's the other thing is that you don't, the PA that you might get on will just, they'll be telling you what to do in the yeah. in the short term rather than relying on you to give them the guidance. So, yeah, I think that's the key thing, right? Like hiring people that are just better at the job than you can ever be. Yeah, I did have a PA for a bit and she was fantastic, like really good for about three months and she was so glamorous. And then she just started doing loads of coke. <laughs> and just became totally useless and you could never like get it's hold of it. It's a bit of a bizarre thing out of the blue. Well, she was obviously doing it, but her and her husband or boyfriend, whatever, and they were just doing coke all the time. It's like, oh my God. And you can you know when people come into the world. She didn't admit it, you just knew it. Yeah, you can see it around their nostrils yeah, yeah. and these huge I've got, I've got a sniffly bags nose of depression again. around her eyes. And I'm like, oh, well, here we go. And now a quick word from our sponsor. At Ori Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients, and if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts? Recently, Dominic Frisby sat down with Ian Phipps and Emma Crowley to talk about auditing. So, I need an audit. I don't want it to be too expensive. I don't want it to be too big a drain on my time. How do I prepare? So the absolute key is plan ahead and make sure that the people in the finance team have got enough time in their diaries to prepare the information and to answer the questions during the audit. We find particularly if the audit is not being done on site at clients' offices, which of course is more and more the case at the moment, it's very easy for people to ignore emails, whereas if you're in the office asking for the information, people tend to be more able to provide it quickly, but definitely plan ahead book time out in your diary for when the audit's going to be happening. You can find our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Ori Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts. At this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, a nice review, please, on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now, back to the chat. 
So what would you say is most misunderstood about being an employer? I don't know. Maybe the biggest thing that's misunderstood is that it's it's pretty bloody hard. You have to assume a lot of other pressure when you start doing that. All of a sudden, you're responsible for other people's livelihoods. You're responsible for them to be, I don't know, their, their career paths. There's got to be the perfect life balance. You've got to have the soft touches. You've got, it, you know, it's a there's a lot that needs to be factored in that, yeah, I don't I don't think neither myself or business partner were really that prepared for when we when we started all of this, but it's something you just need to adapt with and you know, get mm. used to because that's a reality. And how are you it. finding it? I mean, you've got Nick on one side of the world, you on the other. I mean, it's really nice, pleasing to see you guys working well together because it's a big time zone difference, Australia and the UK, obviously, but that is a huge pressure on business partners. I mean, do you, you, you you've been responsible for building here. Are you have you found it difficult building a culture in a different city? Well, I think we've been we've been lucky that we were fairly you know a fairly well developed business by the time we moved over. It wasn't a startup, so we were seven yeah. years old when we when we moved over here. So we had a pretty clear vision, and we brought some people over that relocated with us to help bring that culture. So we've been able to grow that quite quickly and have a, a, a good balance. Yeah, you balance. bought Victoria, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah and then Myra, Myra came shortly after. Um, and we've had a few people seconded over here for a bit. So that was really important for us to then have a, we've got a different culture over here, different, very different people and it's a completely different kind of business but it's not at the same time. So we've got that shared that shared vision, shared values, and that's been pretty. That's essential very to that. interesting. I mean, it's it's a real micro point for many people, maybe. But for me, dealing a lot with Aussies coming here, you know, you're like, who's coming over? Don't you know, half salespeople locally, but actually, you're saying by building a couple of other people to support you, to give a sort of context a bit more to what you do, that 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 create that gave you a sort of um, out the box culture a little bit more, you know. Yeah, and it's what we're, we're we're challenged with at the moment is we're trying to expand into new markets through the the UAE, um, like trying to get a bit of a, a foothold in Hong Kong and Singapore, and then the US. So we've got to try to figure out how we do that. That's tough. Reasonably quickly without building teams in all those places, that becomes so fragmented so quickly. Although possibly Zoom is the answer. Yeah, the challenge is when you when we if we try to expand too quickly, then you you lose touch of a bit of that. I think with the Zoom way of managing it as well, you just you don't get any of the the personal kind of you know, you know when someone gets on the phone with the client, they're just like, well, fuck. You know something's wrong. And if you're in an office environment, you can hear it, you can deal with it, you can have a conversation yeah, about like yeah. what's happened. On Zoom, it's just, you know, camera goes off. You can't talk personally. No, no, so you lose lose a bit of that, like how you – because that's a big impact on productivity. If people aren't enjoying it, if things are too hard, if they feel isolated, yeah, productivity dips. What's, what's, what do you reckon is the hardest thing about your job at the moment? I think I think at the moment, uh, and probably just from coming through this whole COVID period, is trying to balance the, the good and the bad news. Um, there's been enough bad news going around. Was was your because like sports was hit, entertainment in all its forms was hit, but was sports marketing? Yeah, sports marketing in terms of a you know a physical activation or experiential and things that you would do around the ground, which is not what we focus on. That was really heavily hit. So there were huge agencies that were cut back by thirty percent, um, or even more significant, or they just don't exist. Yeah, a lot of furloughs, a lot of layoffs, and still recovering. For us, very much in the digital space, we were we were definitely impacted. Everything went from longer term projects to 
uh, to more tactical campaigns just to fit budgets and timeframes and the uncertainty of it all. Um, but we spent a lot of the time investing in in ourselves, so building up our own team, our own products, building our own proprietary tools and things like that. So when the lights turned back on, we would be in a better position than when we were going in. But it has been the, the most difficult part of it at the moment has been the balancing of the, the good and the bad news. So you're always trying to paint a, a good picture of what's coming down the line, but you also have to be realistic about it's been the worst year of all time that we'll ever have in all of our careers, hopefully, and hopefully we never see it again, but you're still just saying, well, yeah, it's, everything's fine. So there's a big, there's a bit of a balance of just the real side of the story and the business performance and then having to keep spirits yeah. up. The other part of all of that is the, um, you know, probably you guys are feeling it as well, it's, like, it's the, the, the reconnection with the workforce. So I think people oh, have been working fuck, in isolation a, for I so mean, long. I'm going to swear a lot. It's it's a fucking. I mean, my sister said to me, "It's worse than Brexit, Andy. It's worse than fucking Brexit. COVID and discussing coming back to work, not coming back to work, rebuilding teams." So, so one of the things that happen is the tribalism breaks down. There's books about yeah. tribalism, and tribalism is just so fundamental. And you know, it's within sport. It's a tribalism, isn't it? But a business is a tribe. So if I'm working from home all the time, my tribalism just starts breaking down until I'm just like. Well, it doesn't really matter who I work for. My yeah. tribe is my family and my dog or something. And that's a big problem for build, businesses building a culture for, you know, however many years, you know. Um, so we, they can, you can also look for new jobs. Yeah. So it's been in our advantage. We've attracted some real talent, which is amazing. But also people we didn't want to leave are suddenly like, I've worked out. I don't really want to ever come to Slough anymore. <laughs> Funny that. Uh, you know, I'm just going to piss off and do my own thing or, you know, ah, oh, so many difficult questions, you know. Um, I, 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 nobody knows the answer. Everyone's pretending they do. So what I think's happened in the press is you've got the extremes. You've got people going, everyone back to work. People can do what they want, man. And that's all the news. Whereas the truth is in the middle. And I don't think any businesses have really cracked what the middle is. I don't know, what, what, what have you done on this topic? Have you concluded your policy? So we have a partnership with a, a much bigger sports marketing agency, CSM, mm. um, and we are sitting within their office in London and we're between offices at the moment. So we've got one more month until we're going to be back in. So we've had a bit of an extended stay at home, but we've just been trying at every opportunity to have collaborative work, like to get workspaces where we can just have conversations again and start to reintroduce as being back around with each other. Because I think your work is just solving problems. And if you're doing it with people you like, that's great. Work can be fun. As soon as you take away the personal part of it, it's just being back to solving a boring problem, which you can do fucking anywhere. True. Um, so I really think that there's there's some, there's some there's an element of work which I never really understood as much as I do right now, that you just need to be around people. Right, let's uh, come to our sort of home straight, if you like. Who out there can we look to learn from in business right now? Or in the past. Or in the past. Oh. I'll tell you what happens with businesses. They all start out like you'll have some real young, brave entrepreneur, outspoken, you know, huge bollocks on him. <laughs> and, and he'll go like, you know, Richard Branson in the 70s. Right, I'm going to take on British Airways. I'm going to start a new airline. I'm going to take yeah. on British Airways. Cajones. And you, you, exactly. That's the Spanish for bollocks. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, they get there, they have their win, and then they get their little monopoly. And now they own, they've got their airline monopoly and they've got their railway monopoly. What happens to them later in life is it all becomes about protecting 
the the little monopoly that they built for themselves. And it's no longer, do you, do you know what I mean? So they go from taking stuff on to becoming quite protectionist. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, yeah, I think that it's fairly evident with just what you said then with the <laughs> this space race that's going on where yeah. all of the, the richest the people. Are, yeah, like, but, you know, they're all the leaders that you kind of, they, for some reason they all just really want to go into space so they're all having a crash Shouldn't at it they but they're all, all protecting their little... They're little, yeah, they probably should pull some resources there, I would have thought. But, you know, even with those people in particular, that you can learn a lot from them. If Richard Branson lands on the moon and then plants a virgin flag, like, I will die, at that point I'm blocking him on Twitter. <laughs> and Elon, Elon's got Mars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, like I, I think you, you can obviously learn a lot from those people. Personally, I would be looking... Uh, there wouldn't be names that I would say that would be of any relevance around this table, I don't think, because it's probably just people that are closer to you that you can learn a lot more from because they're kind of living more I, I like that answer, though. I don't, I don't engage very well with the big leaders. I mean, I like I like people like Elon or whoever trying to do something, just being like, fuck it, we're going to go, you know, change an industry and that's great. But I, all my valuable conversations come out of tiny little conversations, you know, oft, often a very small business or some, you know, mum who's failed at a business and says something to me in the kitchen and I just think, ah, oh, that's so true. I don't know, the obsession with celebrity, it's this thing and, you know, it's proven by anthropologists that it's like because they're successful because they've got followers or because they... You, you you try and copy everything they do thinking, oh, well, that will make me successful too. Like, you know, people do drugs to try and make good music. You know, it's sort of hilarious. I just don't, I think what people don't take into account is like Elon Musk, I've already blocked him. Have you? I've, I just can't stand him because he's like, oh, I'm this great guy. I've done all these amazing things. Literally all his income comes from subsidy. It's not from actually selling stuff. It's like it's bigger, it's all little tax breaks and whatever. He inspires If them. you have the chart, he's just an attention seeker. Um, like if you have a chart of, of life and you've got on the y-axis, the axis going up is luck and the other one is stuff that you can actually make happen. Mm. And then the reality is, is that the line that goes up the graph is like everything on one side is, is stuff that you can make happen. But so much of it is just luck, you know, even right down to where you were born or when you were born. Like all those Steve Jobs and Bill Gates just happened to be born at exactly the right time to be getting into computers yeah, when yeah. they were in their early 20s, you know. So it's just... So much of it is just down to luck that you can't control. Confidence. There's a lot yeah. about confidence, sure. which is what the Americans are good at. What's the best piece of advice you were ever given? Oh, look, in a saying that I genuinely like a lot is uh, if you look after the pennies, the pounds look after themselves. I do, I do like that just from a... If you start doing the little things well, you're just kind of repeating the things that work for you, then everything else kind of falls into, into place. So I think it is just you can have a, that monstrous idea, but... It's best not to just be thinking, you know, 30 years down the, the, the track. It's going to be just doing these little bits and pieces now that are going to have that impact. The accumulation of incremental gains. That's the one. Details matter. Yeah. What are you most excited about for the future of your business? I'm really excited about the, um, the, the team that we've got now here in the UK for the, you know, the first time since we've moved over feels very complete. I think just sport coming back and us from reminding ourselves why we love it so much, like the you know, the routines around the community that it builds, the the shared experiences are all the things that get us super excited. But it's also the thing that makes our our work actually work. So we've spent the last six twelve months in in building our team and finding the right people that 
um, kind of represent what we we want to achieve in the future. And and I think we're right there now. So with that combination of um, I'm probably getting a little bit more established in this new market and then sport coming back to its true form is something to get really excited about. Are you a big reader? Do you have like your top three business books? Well, one of the books that I was thinking about when you were talking before is like, there's a book called The Click Moment, I think by Franz Johansson or something along those lines. And it is that, that, that um, it was something that I really enjoyed in the early stages of our business because it talks about the luck factor, like the serendipitous moments that you can prepare yourself for. And when you recognise that something is there, then it's about how you can position yourself to, to kind of take advantage of them. One of them being when we moved over here was just putting ourselves out there to have a conversation with a much bigger organisation like a CSM, Chime Sports Marketing, that we could then find a partnership and then we were willing to move and we were willing to kind of take a bit of a risk on that. Was that luck or was that confidence? You, you went and pitched to them, did you? Well, I think it was more we were open to you know, a serendipitous you know, right, chance right, encounter. Right. So yeah, yeah. You know, there, were, there were kind of knock-on effects from meeting these guys at the Grand Prix for their kind of annual junket down to Melbourne and then continuing conversations and making a few trips over here to just, you know, see, it was completely different to anything it's we so, ever thought it's, of. Yeah, no, it's very true. You've got to be, you've got to be ready. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember working with this producer and, um, and uh, they, this big American like connected to Jay-Z showed some passing interest and this guy I know who's very wise said, he should drop everything, he should move to LA and he should go and he should just fucking do it and he could be big. He's a good producer, he's had the nudge and that's what he should do. But because he's just mindset, well, you know, I wouldn't want to risk it and stuff and it's probably true, he probably amounted to nothing and he's probably, if he'd gone for it, it could have all happened sort of thing. It's lose yourself, it's Eminem, you know, if if you have one chance. He could have been James Blunt. (laughs) (laughs) We can all dream. (laughs) Okay, so... That was the click moment? That is correct. Um, give us a couple more. Another, well, the Shoe Dog by Phil Knight is an absolute ripper for me. It is, uh, it is the, the Nike founder's story. So it is um, that perfect balance of just a, a, lot of, a lot of background into that as a major brand, but also the story that he's got in his family background, his kind of, his challenges within his own family and his, and his son um, is, is a fairly emotional story. But I just didn't know all. I didn't know what was behind the brand Nike, the, the partnership with Asics, and, and the, the whole journey against um, Adidas as well. So yeah, that, that was a really that was a really good read for anybody that uh, you know wants a bit of a mix of of sport and uh, and just business you know leadership. Final one I think would be probably the most influential for, for me is a book called uh, Principles by Ray Dalio, who uh, was Bridgewater hedge fund founder. He only, like, that's only like last year he published that, isn't it? Yeah, I think it might have, maybe it, was, it wasn't, it's not all that old. Yeah. Um, but it is just a, it's a real common sense book. Like there's something you can read and it, it makes a lot of sense for any business owners or managers because the ultimate kind of, I guess, take out from it is you hire for the who, not the what. So you can get a bunch of CVs and they can all, everyone can look great on paper, but if they don't fit the principles of your business, it's destined for failure. So if you can fill your team with people that are aligned to the principles of your business, they'll learn what they need to learn and they will be smart enough to be able to come along on that journey, but they will absolutely nail um, the culture of the business and kind of you know, set you up for a success, I think. Very good. And if there was one thing in the world you could change over the next five years, what would it be? 
I would say the adoption of uh, August being a massive holiday in the UK, like the like continental Europe. Yeah. You think we should do it? Well, I think for a number of reasons. I, I, I can't understand why for the very limited time that there's any sunshine in this place, it's the busiest time it seems, but it's like an unofficial break period. It's because we can't, we're not sure it's going to be in August. We don't know when it's going to come. But I think going forward, like, this is an opportunity for us to switch off a bit and, can, and reconnect with the people around us, but also recharge the batteries for the horrors that is coming with winter. If, if Australia does one thing really well, it's December is just junk time. It's fun. It's a bit of a shutdown period. There's a lot of good business that gets done, but it's not, you know, done in the cities. Well, there's a lot, lot of proof to taking a break gets better results, doesn't it? And the, the French have just started because I've just tried to email someone yeah, in France they're and they're away till the 23rd of August. I don't understand. The whole country goes on holiday. Yeah, it's, well, that, I, I, genu- I think there's a lot of benefit in, in doing something like that. I think, I think we're going to need more. Swedes do it. Italy does it. Italy does it. See, we've got to catch up. This is my big change for the next five years. Get that done. <laughs> we're, life will be better here. Why don't why don't we even think about it here? I don't know. We got we got bigger mortgages to pay. <laughs> okay, it's time for the business versus bullshit quick fire round. D, cue the music. This is where we reel off a list of key terms, and all you have to do is tell us whether you think, Tom, it is business or bullshit. One diversity quotas. Business. Stand-up meetings. Bullshit. Three, slogans in the workplace. Bullshit. Four, pub lunches. Business. Correct. Five, (laughs) formal work clothes. Bullshit. Six, non-executive directors. Bullshit. Don't know, I don't even know what they are. Yeah, I was going to ask the question. Seven, board minutes. Business. Eight, T's and C's. Business. Nine, exercising. Business. Ten, NDAs. Bullshit. Eleven, contracts. Business. Twelve, GDPR notices. Business. Thirteen, acronyms. Bullshit, but it is part of our business. Fourteen, coffee. Business. Fifteen, office dogs. Careful, careful. Absolute business, yeah. (laughs) Absolute business, good stuff. Right, um, so it's time for you to plug yourself if our guests want to find out more about you, Tom, about your business. How how do they go about doing that? Uh, They can find us at greenroom.digital or you can find me on LinkedIn, Tom Huggins. Pretty easy to find out there. Tom Huggins on LinkedIn and greenroom.digital. Okay, folks, there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you to Tom Huggins for joining us. A big thank you to you, dear listener. And we'll be back with another episode in a fortnight. In the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Biz Without BS, where you'll find more helpful business content. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for us using the hashtags Biz Without BS and Ori Clark, O-U-R-Y Clark. Until next time, from me and Andrew Ori, it is goodbye. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark. We've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935. 
to find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you, whatever your needs, email us at contact at auriclark.com. That is contact at O-U-R-Y-C-L-A-R-K.com or via our website. Ori Clark, you provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.